All right, so if you don't know me, my name's Ryan Ackerman. I'm actually a pastoral resident, uh, intern here at Charles River Church. Pastor Josh has given me just an awesome opportunity to speak here today. I'm super excited about it. And because we just finished up uh, the, the, the past series about the church and, and, and God's ideas for the church and his plan for the church, Josh let me preach on whatever I wanted. Um, so this sermon is coming out of things that God is just working in my life in just powerful ways. And I'm so excited to, to communicate those to you and I hope that, that the Word of God just moves you in a way that is just miraculous tonight. That's what I've been praying for. Uh, so before we get into our passage, uh, let's just bow our hearts, kind of quiet ourselves, and uh, come before the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Father, it's... It's no light thing to be in your presence. Father, we are your people. This is your world. You've given us your word. Father, you know our hearts and our minds. You know our needs. And I just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will move among us today so that you are glorified, as the song said, that you are lifted up higher and that we are built up. So do a mighty work among us, Father. I pray that you will grow us closer to you, grow us in our, in our understanding of you, but encourage us, Father, but also show us who you are. Lift, lift yourself up tonight, Lord, that you might be glorified. I pray above all other things that you will be central to all that is said here tonight. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, so this thing that God has been showing me lately has to do with the idea of trust. And as I've been uh, reading and praying and spending time with the Lord, He's really been showing me areas of my life, especially in, in, in the area of trusting Him where it just something is lacking. I'm not quite getting it. And trust is an important thing. Uh, sometimes we just naively place trust in things and uh, whether it be someone or something other than God, and it all comes down to the fact that every once in a while, our trust is misplaced. When I was an undergrad, I had this friend, and he inherited a really large sum of money from uh, his grandfather. And the first thing he wanted to do was take me and another friend skydiving. Uh, so he called me up, and to be honest with you, I'm not very brave, I'm kind of a chicken. Uh, and I just kind of said, sure, yeah, you're paying, let's do it. So we, the three of us decide we're going skydiving. He makes the reservations, and the day comes. And the three of us drive out to this tiny little airfield. And we get there, and, you know, we sign the waiver that says if we die, they're not responsible. And they give us these harnesses, and they put on the harnesses, and, and they say, all right, guys, just go outside and wait for a little while. It'll be a couple minutes. So we go outside, and they're gassing up the planes, and uh, they're packing the chutes. And right then, it kind of hit me like, oh, wow, this is actually going to happen. I'm starting to get nervous, you know. Uh, so as we sat there, this, this was uh, a smaller airfield. And I don't know if it's regulated like this or not, but um, if this was your first time jumping, they make you go tandem. So they basically hook your harness to a professional. And um, so this guy comes over, 
and he introduces himself, and we shake hands, and gives me this like three to five minute orientation. And he says, all right, something happens to me, we're up there, this is what you do, you pull this, that doesn't work, you pull this. We got these altitude clocks, if we hit this altitude and I haven't pulled anything, then, you know, let me know. And then he tells us, all right, this is what we're going to do when, we're, when we land. And he's giving me all this information in, honestly, three to five minutes. When I say orientation, I use the word loosely. It was super quick, and he walks away, and I'm just getting more nervous. And because it's such a small airfield and we're using such a small plane, they took us up individually. So my turn comes, and we get in the plane, and he hooks his harness up to mine, and I'm, I'm on the front, and he's, he's hooked up behind me. And we get in there, and, and the, the plane's gaining altitude, and because it's a smaller plane, there's just the pilots, and then there's me and the guy, and then there's a, another woman who's apparently had a lot of experience jumping out of planes, so she was just going on her own. And they had decided she was going first. So we get to the right altitude, and they open up the, the door of the plane, and we're flying, and the door is open. And now I'm like freaking out. And they decide she's going first, and this woman goes out, goes over to the door, and she reaches out, and there's like a bar. I forget if it's on the wing or near the wing, and she grabs it. And she's just hanging there, totally horizontal, with on the wing, basically. And then she lets go, and her b- body's gone in like a split second. And internally, I cannot tell you what is happening to me right now. I'm just freaking out internally, like, did that just happen? And I'm starting to think and question, like, oh, man, they only gave me three to five minute orientation. There's ladies hanging on the wings. Is this safe? And then it hits me. And by the way, who is this guy? I don't know who he is. Never met him before. Met him for three minutes. Don't even, know, don't even remember his name. I haven't checked his credentials. Should I have called some references to make sure this guy is reliable? And as I'm thinking through all of this, the, the question that kept popping up in my mind was, can I trust him? Can I trust him? Is this person trustworthy? Is he worthy of my trust? And in those moments, I just had to concede that I don't know. You know, I, I don't know if I can trust him. So right then, when the, when the woman kind of let go, he, he leans forward and he whispers in my ear and he says, okay, we're up. So I'm thinking, oh, great. And he says, we're going to sneak a little closer to the door. So we sneak closer to the door. And the door's open and we're flying through the air. And he says, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to position my body in the doorway. And because you're, and I'm going to hang on to the door frame. Because you're in front of me, your body's going to be hanging out of the plane. And then when I'm ready, I'm going to lunge forward and we'll, be, we'll skydive. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? I did not sign up for this. So we do it, and we, we sneak forward. He's holding onto the frame, and my body is literally hanging out of an open door of a plane that is flying through the sky. And at this moment, I'm no longer questioning him. I'm just praying. God, please, I don't know who this guy is, but I know I can trust you. Please get me through this. I didn't know this was coming. Please, Father, please. And he lunges forward, and we skydive, and we land, and it all works out. And Overall, it was a thrilling experience. But as I look back on my time skydiving, I realize 
that, that experience was indicative of something else fundamentally more important going on in my life. And it's misplaced trust. You see, I began to question, why can I place trust in all, all the way up until the very end in some complete stranger to pull the chute, but I have such a hard time trusting God, this all-powerful, all-knowing, holy God with my daily needs. Why is it that I, I wasn't praying all along? Why did it take me to literally be hanging out of a plane door before I started praying about this? And what I learned from my experience skydiving is that what's ultimately important is the reliability of the one in whom I'm placing my trust. Now, as it turned out, it worked out okay. He got us to the bottom. He pulled the chute. We landed. We made it safely. But in those final moments, right before I was about to jump, it hit me. If you, if you place your trust in man, you just have no idea what you're going to get. That mankind, humans, each other, things of this world are not, they are not a worthy or reliable source of your trust. Now, as we're about to see in the passage today, this issue of struggling who to trust, where to place my trust, where to direct my trust, is not unique to you and I. It's something that people have been dealing with, grappling with, struggling with for a long, long time. So please turn with me to our text for today. It's in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 to 10. That's Jeremiah 17, 5 to 10. And God's Word reads, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And there's a lot packed into that text. Uh, before we get in there, I just want to give you some background to what Jeremiah is writing. Um, this text is a, a poetic oracle addressing the sins of Judah and the consequences of their sins. And you see, God's people have had this long history with the Lord. And throughout that long history with the Lord, they have a long history of placing faith in other things besides the Lord. We see in uh, Genesis 15, God makes this covenant with His servant Abraham. And it's this amazing thing. It's an, it's an unconditional covenant where God promises, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your, your offspring numerous. I'm going to bring you to the promised land. I'm going to make your name great. We also see in Genesis 12, all the nations will be blessed through your seed. God has promised this to His servant Abraham unconditionally, which means Abraham, no matter what he does, God is going to do this through him and for him. 
And he does just that. He gives his barren wife a son in Isaac, and he gives Isaac a son in Jacob, and their people just flourish. And eventually their people uh, come to, to Egypt, and they're enslaved in Egypt, and God is faithful to them. He rises up a, his servant Moses, and he delivers them out miraculously. And we see in Exodus 24 that he makes another covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant. And this one is different. This one is not an unconditional covenant. It's conditional. Which means that there's a series of blessings and there's a series of curses that come along with this covenant based upon the obedience of the people. You see, now that God is, is with them and He's dwelling with them in the tabernacle, He's got to put some, some checks in there because see, this holy God is coming to dwell among this unholy people. So they need to do something to keep themselves clean so that he can, His presence can dwell among them. He wants this relationship. And this covenant with, with Moses, this Mosaic covenant, is all about relationship. And, and, and as part of this unconditional covenant, like I said, there are blessings and curses. We see some of those listed in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 11. And that the people, if they want God's presence with them, if they want this relationship with God, they've got to obey His law. So what happens? Not long after God gives them the law, the people break the law, right? As Moses is on the mountain, Exodus 32, what are the people doing? Taking off their jewelry, gathering their gold, melting it down, forming an idol, the golden calf, coming around it, worshiping it, placing their trust in this man-made thing. And the Israelites begin this trend of continually turning away from the living God to these dead idols, these dead man-made things, placing their trust in these dead things as opposed to the living one who wants relationship with them. And in spite of Israel's great disobedience, Moses petitions on their behalf, right? And he's got no legal ground to do so. They've broken, they've transgressed this covenant. God has every right to inflict the curses of the covenant upon them. But Moses appeals to his mercy, and God is merciful, and he's gracious, and he continues on with the people. And throughout the Israel's history, throughout their time of conquest that we see in Joshua and Judges, when they're conquering peoples in the land, claiming the uh, promised land that God himself is giving the people, they're turning away from him, they're grumbling, they're trusting in idols. They're intermarrying, they're doing all of these things that God has told them not to do throughout um, the the, the time of the judges when God is raising up these people to save them from foreign peoples. They're turning away from God, trusting in other things. Throughout the time of kings when God gives them David and Solomon, the people are rebellious and sinful. And they're trusting in other things beside the one true holy living God. And then around 930 B.C., the kingdom of Israel, this kingdom of Israel splits and to Israel in the north, and Judah in the south. And they're fighting with each other. And both nations become just enveloped in this politically complex situation where other powers are threatening them, and Assyria and Egypt, and their, their kings are making treaties with all these foreign powers in defense against other powers instead of trusting in God. 
And throughout this time, God gives them the prophets who are telling them repeatedly, time and time again, turn back to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. These foreign powers can't help you. These idols can't give you what you need. Turn back to the Lord. Trust in Him. He's the only, only, only worthy object of your trust. And Jeremiah happens to be one of those prophets. His prophetic message is directed to the people of Judah in the southern kingdom who are just engulfed in sin. Let's turn to to, uh, chapter 17. Right before our passage, it really gives us some context. In verse 1, And Jeremiah writes, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their ashram beside every green tree and on the high hills and on the mountains and the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. The speaker here is God, speaking through his prophet Jeremiah, pronouncing judgment on the sins of Judah. And look at what he's saying. He's using this extreme language. And in the context of this Mosaic covenant that they're supposed to be obeying and and fulfilling these laws, what he is saying in verse 1 is just pure condemnation. Look what he says. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. These people are just marked with their own sin. They've turned so far away from the Lord and they no longer trust in Him. Their altars cry out to, to, to their covenant transgression. We also see here in verse 2, what, what are their children remembering? They're not remembering the covenant that their people have made with God, with this holy God, to live in relationship with Him. They're remembering their altars. And they're remembering these altars, these these idols, beside every green tree, every high hill, every mountain on the open country. In this promised land that God Himself has set aside for these people, that He has allowed them to come into and, and, and dwell, that God has given them, they've filled it next to the high hills and those beautiful trees that God has given these people. They've put altars to idols right next to them. They're not trusting in the holy God. And it goes on and it shows us that something's going to happen. These covenantal curses at some point are coming. And Jeremiah is trying so very hard to get these people to make the connection that they need to turn back to God in faithfulness. That God is the only worthy source of their trust. And this brings us to our passage today. And the first thing I hope to, uh, to just clarify is that it matters that we place our trust in a worthy source. Let's take a look at verse uh, uh, 5 to 8 again. And we're going to see here that spoken in response to Judah's sin, Jeremiah makes this uh, pretty, pretty amazing contrast between these two men. 
And what are these two men doing? They're both believing in something, right? And in contrasting these two men, we get these amazing pictures of human life. Verse 5 and 6 gives us this tragic picture of the life without God. When you're trusting in something other than the one true holy God, Verse 7 and 8 gives us this beautiful, amazing, magnificent picture of the Christian life. That if you stand here a believer in Christ Jesus and He has so transformed your life and you have a relationship with Him, you should look at verse 7 and 8 and just, man, be beside yourself with joy and thankfulness because this is a possibility for you. So the first man that we see here is the cursed man, right? The cursed man, he trusts in man, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. And verse 5 and 8 come right after 1 to 4, obviously, and and making some connections, we do see that the cursed man is Judah. I mean, they're sinful. And look, look how they're described. The source of their strength is what? Flesh. The, the, the source of their strength is, is worldly. It's earthly. Uh, they turn deliberately away from, from God. Uh, they trust in human effort and ingenuity. Uh, their strength is limited to this world. And one, another thing we see from this description is that there are pretty profound consequences that come when you're directing your trust, when you're putting your faith in something that is just not worthy of it. The first consequence is kind of jumps off the page. It's pretty obvious. It's This man is cursed, right? He will not experience the life of blessing that God has in store for him because he's placed his trust in something other than God. Second one, we see through the image of the shrub that this person is not sustained. He will not be sustained. He has no ability to, to sustain life. It's this image of barrenness and death. We have this, this low brush, this desert plant, totally disconnected from any kind of water or nourishment. And when the heat comes and the, and the drought comes, it just cannot be fruitful. And these are the consequences of placing your trust in something other than God to miss the blessing of God, and to receive no sustenance when you're facing the harsh realities of life. And Jeremiah contrasts that man to the blessed man. Verse 7 and 8, we get this just, man, beautiful picture of the Christian life. It says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water, that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And in describing this man, Jeremiah uses these amazing images of vitality and stability and life. And there are implications to trusting as well, right? Number one, he's blessed. This man is receiving the benefits that God alone can provide. Number two, this tree can expect to be watered. Verse 8 says, He is like a tree planted by water 
And this planting, this watering is a passive thing. It's not active. This man is not planting himself. He's not watering himself. He's being planted and being watered by someone else, right? By, by this holy God who's worthy of his trust. And what's so notable is that when it's, it's, uh, the waters run, run, run dry and the, and the drought comes, it, because its roots are so deep, it spreads out to the water. Which brings us to the third thing. Yes, this tree can expect to be watered, but it can expect to be watered even in times of drought. Which is so important for us to understand. Because Jeremiah is not giving you a picture of a God who never allows His people to go through hardship. Right? Actually, it's quite the opposite image. He does not equate blessing with earthly prosperity. Blessing here means that you are in a good position in relation to God. And that blessing, based on that relationship, will take recognizable form at some point. It may be in this life, based on God's sovereign plan for you. It may not come until the new heavens and the new earth, believe it or not. So this is not a prosperity gospel which uh, corrupts the true gospel by saying, you know what, you're going to get everything right now. That's not what Jeremiah is telling us. The text actually says that the blessed man also experiences the heat and the drought and the difficult times. Which brings us to our fourth implication. The blessed man does not fear and he does not get anxious. While the blessed man experiences these difficult times, this drought, the drought causes him no fear. The drought does not make him anxious because he's got faith in this holy God that is so worthy of his trust and this God sustains him in the midst of all of that. It's this amazing, beautiful picture of the life with God. It's just so great. So you're not guaranteed to get all your wildest dreams come true by becoming a Christian, by accepting Jesus, by understanding the Gospel. And, but you are guaranteed something better. You're, you're guaranteed a life with God and He is guaranteed to bless you if you will trust Him. You know, I had this friend who was from Africa originally. And uh, I remember one of our first conversations, I was just kind of asking him, you know, uh, how, how's the transition? What's, what's it like coming to the West from, from Africa? And you, we got into this conversation, and I started asking him about the African church and just kind of asking him what some of the differences were and some things he noticed. And um, he said, well, one of the things I, I noticed is that Christians in America, when something happens, when they're going through a trial or something like that, they, they, they pray that God will take it away, that God will just deliver them from this trial. And he said, but in Africa, we just pray that God will give us the strength to endure it. And I just think, man, there's just some profound truth in there. Because you know what? Sometimes God's plan for you and for me includes trial. And he's got specific reasons for it to refine us, to teach us lessons, to uh, teach us things which build us up as better servants so that we can still minister to others. I mean, we probably won't know all the reasons for why he allows us to go through what we go through until we get to heaven, but he has reasons. And it's for our good and for his glory. And when he said that, I just really understood how little I understood that in my own life. So sometimes trial is part of the plan. 
But as a Christian, we have this God to place our trust in who gets us through all that. So what does this kind of look like in real life, you know? I mean, Jeremiah uses these images of the shrub versus in the tree and, uh, you know, fruitfulness and, and not fruitfulness. And he uses these images of the cursed man and the blessed man. But how does that, how does that look? Um, and as I was trying to work that out in my own mind, uh, I realized that a friend of mine is just a great example. Um, I'm currently taking a class with uh, this guy, Mike. And Mike is, uh, is a deaf man. He's been deaf since uh, birth, actually. So he comes into class, and he has these two translators. It's a three-hour class, so they kind of switch off. And uh, he stands there, and they're sitting right in front of him. They're signing as the, as the professor's lecturing. And as we have conversation and people ask questions, him and the translators are going back and forth. And I remember first meeting Mike and thinking, man, from where I sit... <laughs> He has been dealt a tough hand, you know. It, just the t- I can't imagine the daily struggles and, and all the different things that he has to deal with and go through. Um, but once you get to know Mike, this guy loves the Lord. And he is so joyful and so loving and so peace just kind of pours out of him. And he almost always will say something through his translators almost every class that just kind of blows my mind and encourages me just deeply. And he is just an awesome, awesome guy. But by worldly standards, you know, Mike has every right to be bitter and angry and upset and unkind. And I don't think anyone would begrudge him that, you know. He's got really difficult challenges in his life. And you know what? If he trusted in himself and his own power to get through those challenges, to cope with them, he might very well be a spiteful, angry, bitter person. But Mike has learned that placing his trust in God has made a real difference in his life. And because of that, he is just this kind, loving, joyful servant with this powerful testimony, doing great things for the Lord. And God is blessing him in the midst of these challenges. For my friend Mike, in God's infinite wisdom, he has decided not to take away his deafness. But he's blessing him in the midst of it. Mike is the blessed person of Jeremiah 17. So let me just ask you, what challenges are you facing? Are you struggling with life direction? Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you're at a crossroad. You're not sure which way to go. Um, maybe you have a stressful relationship in your life or something that's just not working and you're not sure how to, how to make it work. Maybe your finances are getting tighter as the bills are piling higher. Maybe you're, God is calling you to some form of obedience and you're just struggling with how to obey because it means such inconvenience and you don't know how to just do it. What challenges are you facing? And more importantly, who are you trusting in to get you through those challenges? Who are you placing your trust in? Are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in someone else? Are you trusting in something of this world? Or are you trusting 
and the holy God who is the only reliable and worthy object of our trust. The heart trusts in the Lord. The heart that trusts in the Lord is the heart that the Lord blesses. So while God is this appropriate source of our trust, Jeremiah goes on to reveal something uh, a little bit deeper. And he tells us that trusting in the Lord, in this worthy source, is ultimately a heart issue, right? We see in verse 9 and 10, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And the heart is key for trusting in the Lord. This is going to be a religion and a relationship of the heart. All along, God wants the people's hearts. It's it's amazing. He wants your heart. He's looking for your heart. He wants our hearts. This is a relationship of the heart that, that God the Father, through the mediating work of His Son, Jesus Christ, by the power and grace of His Holy Spirit, He is calling us to this relationship of the heart. And when Jeremiah says heart, he's not merely talking about our affections or our emotions. Heart is a term that's really used biblically as the seat of our, our, our intellect, our, our emotions, our will. I mean, it's all of us. It's all of you. God wants all of you. So after dealing with these sinful Judeans, Jeremiah concludes that there's something wrong with the heart. And if we need to trust in God because He's the only worthy source and our heart has to be right in order to trust in God, but something is wrong with our heart. And Jeremiah himself even admits that his own heart needs healing in verse 14. And Jeremiah's conclusion about the human heart is just crazy. He makes this radical statement. He says the human heart is deceitful and desperately sick. He denies that people are innately good, which we're not. We're sinners, right? We're all sinful. And our hearts are sick and just overwhelmed, much like the Judeans whose hearts are etched with, a, with an iron pen, with a diamond point, with their own sin. You and I are just like them. That's, that's our heart. Those are, those are our hearts. And it's so important to get this because in order to appreciate what God has done for us through the redemptive work of His Son Jesus, you need to know what you've been saved from, right? What you've been saved from is this deceitful and desperately sick heart. And Jeremiah conveys the complexities of that heart. He asks this rhetorical question, who can understand it? This thing is so sinful, who can understand it? Then he tells us the answer in verse 10. God can understand it. He's the one. He understands the human heart. He understands the deep-seated depravity of the human heart. So things are looking pretty bleak at this point, aren't they? I mean, we need to trust in God. He's the only worthy of, uh, object of our trust. And we need, this, we need this heart to trust in Him, but our hearts are so corrupted with sin. How can we possibly trust in Him? It's this paradox that can just be depressing and discouraging and despairing. 
thankfully, Jeremiah's message doesn't end there. And thankfully, God's work for us does not end there. So, so far, we've learned that it's appropriate to trust in God alone. He's the only worthy object of our trust. Trusting is a heart issue, right? But our hearts are stained with our own sin. So how can we trust? Which brings us to our third point. In order to trust in a worthy source, we need God to change our hearts. While Jeremiah despairs over the the fallen nature of humanity and over just the, the sin of Judah, he also provides them such amazing hope And there is such beauty in Jeremiah's prophetic message because yes, he says, you're sinful and you're lost, but wait, there's hope. God alone knows your heart. He knows how sinful you are. And not only that, He's going to do something proactively to change your heart so that you can trust, so that you can be blessed. That a day will come when God will do something so dramatic that our hearts are changed and we are able to trust in Him and receive the blessing in this life that God wants us to have. I have a, a New Testament professor, and whenever we talk about heart, heart change or the New Covenant, things like that, he, he continually leads us back to three um, Old Testament passages. And one of them is a passage in Jeremiah's Message In Jeremiah 31, he says, uh, and this is how my professor kind of summarizes it. Jeremiah 31, God promises to write His laws on our hearts so that we can know Him. Deuteronomy 30, God will circumcise the heart so we can love Him. Ezekiel 36, God will give us a new heart and spirit so we can obey Him. And listen to this in Jeremiah 31, what God has done in response to our sinful and depraved hearts. He has done something for us that we could never do for ourselves so that we can trust in Him and so that we might be blessed. Jeremiah 31, 31-34, He promises to write His laws on our hearts that we will know Him. Let's read this together. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah is saying, God is going to do something. He's going to bring about this new covenant. He'll make a new covenant with His people that's not conditional like the, the Mosaic covenant. The people don't need to... God's presence in their lives, this relationship is not contingent on obedience. God is going to do something to our hearts so that we might uh, live with Him and love Him and trust in Him because we just can't do it on our own because our hearts are too sinful. So what is this new covenant all about? Verse 33. But this is the the, the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put My law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be My people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know Me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. 
Jeremiah is giving these people such hope. He's telling them about their sins. And yes, it's a despairing uh, condition to be in, but God is doing something to change your condition. He's giving them new hearts so that they can know God. We see the same thing happening in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That God is taking measures to ensure that His people are able to love Him with their hearts in a way that they, we never could naturally on our own because our hearts were too sinful. But God is doing something to our hearts to change it so that we can trust Him, we can live with Him, we can relate to Him, we can be blessed by Him. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues Statutes and be careful to obey my uh, rules. Man, that is amazing. Because he's not talking about mere heart renewal. He's not going to take our hearts that are sick with sin and sprinkle some medicine on there and swirl it around and make it so you know it feels better and we can you know have this life with God. He's giving us a new heart. Jeremiah saying, or Ezekiel is saying here, yes, you're, you're stuck in your sins, but God is going to do something to give you a new heart so that you can trust Him and you can be blessed by Him. And it is going to be awesome. Of course, God makes good on His promises, doesn't He? He sends His Son, Jesus Christ, to take on a human body, to humble Himself, coming down from the right hand of the Father, walk among us to be mocked by us and so unworthy of him but he did it and he was scorned and he was beaten and he was made fun of and he, he allowed his body to be nailed to a cross and he died he allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed because someone had to pay the penalty for this covenant transgression right this sin in our lives Someone had to endure that curse. Someone had to pay the penalty. Someone had to be the sacrifice. And you know what? It could never have been you or me. Our hearts are too black with sin. So God did something for us. He proactively sent His Son to do for us what we never could have done for ourselves. And as a result of Jesus Christ, His atoning work, His redemptive work, justifying us before God, we might have a new heart, a heart of flesh, that's able to trust, that's able to love Him, that's able to be blessed by Him. So I want you to leave here today just standing in awe of this holy God, knowing what He has done for us, because He's the only, only worthy source of your trust. And you know what? You never could have trusted in Him with these sinful hearts. So He did something 
to give you a new heart so that you may trust Him and be blessed by Him. It's all about God. It's all about His work for us. Let Him be lifted up high today. Stand in awe of Him. So how do you have a blessed life? By God's standards, a blessed life. You trust in the Lord. How do you trust in the Lord? You need God to give you a new heart. How, do you, how does God give you a new heart? You place your faith in Jesus Christ. Now we know, I kind of skimmed over it in verse, I believe it was 10, that God is actively searching our hearts and testing our minds, right? It says He's searching our hearts, testing our minds. For all we know, He might be doing so right now. He might be searching our hearts and testing our minds, right? The question is, what is He seeing? What is He finding as He searches our hearts and tests our minds? Does He see a heart that's trusting in worldly things, earthly things, that is dried up and fruitless like that desert shrub? Or does He find a heart that trusts in Him and even when difficulties come, when the drought comes and the trials are there and the realities of this difficult life are bearing down on you, you trust in Him and because of that your roots go deep to the living waters and you have green leaves and you're bearing fruit for the kingdom. What kind of heart is He seeing? just want to encourage you today that the heart that trusts in the Lord is the heart that the Lord blesses. And our text today is not some abstract writing from a long time ago that has no relevance for you and I. It is relevant to us because Jeremiah's words that applied to these Judeans, to his contemporaries, to people in Bible times, also apply to you and I. So each of you this evening has the opportunity to be the blessed person of Jeremiah 17. Maybe that means taking that first step. Trusting in Jesus Christ. Confessing your guilt, your, your sin before Him. Admitting that, yes, you are the Son of God. You died for me. You paid the penalty that I couldn't have paid for myself. You did this for me. And I, I love you. Thank you. I accept you. Come into my life. I want this relationship for you. If you want my heart, I want you to have it. Maybe it means accepting Jesus today placing saving faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but you haven't been living in the liberties that that relationship affords you. Maybe you've got this, this heart and you've got this relationship, but you're still trusting in yourself for these difficult issues. You're trusting in other people. You're trusting in worldly things. Your trust is rooted here instead of there. I just challenge you today. Come before the Lord and redirect that trust to Him. He's the only worthy source and He's wanting to bless you in the midst of whatever's going on. So please know tonight that the heart that trusts in the Lord is the heart that the Lord trusts. The heart that trusts in the Lord is the heart, I'm sorry, that the Lord blesses. Let's pray. Our Father, 
It is all about you today. Just like every other day. That you know our hearts. You know how sinful we are. And we praise you, holy God, the one true living King, that you did something about it. You knew that we couldn't obey you on our own and you sent your Son. And Father, I just pray that each one of us here will be so filled with thanksgiving to you for what you've done, Lord, and help us in this struggle. It is still hard for us, Father, to trust you sometimes. And I pray, Father, that each one here, regardless of the circumstances, that you will lead them and guide them and be gracious to them as they learn to trust in you, Father. And we pray all of these things, not for our own benefit or anything like that. We pray it for your own glory. Be lifted up high among us today. Please help us. We love you. We praise you. Thank you for Jesus and your spirit. We pray all of these things in Jesus' holy name, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.